and then I'm going to talk through three points, and I'm going to give a little bit of application at the end. So there's our, our roadmap, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 19 through 23. So 2,000 years ago, give or take a year, Paul writes this to a profoundly dysfunctional church in a profoundly dysfunctional city, which was Corinth. And he is talking about the challenges that he is facing himself and the challenges that they are facing. And it is extremely familiar to what we face today, which are challenges. If we want to live out our faith, if we want our faith to not just be something that we talk about, but actually that we live, there is profound challenge. And this has always been the case. It's just really a question of what is the challenge that we are currently facing. And then then how do we turn that into an opportunity to see Jesus redeem these challenges, meet these challenges as we live out our faith? One of the most beautiful things that we get to do as followers of Jesus is to encourage other people to follow Jesus. But whether you are in Walla Walla or Issaquah or Tokyo or Sydney, it is a challenge. And so Paul, as he's talking about what it looks like for him, he says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. And I'm using the New Living Translation Uh, This morning, so if it reads a little bit different than yours, New Living Translation is what I'm using. But he said, when I was with the Jews, and, and Paul was a Jew, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. So here you have Paul. He's straddling two cultures. And these are incredibly different cultures. Even sharing a meal together is a profound challenge for Jews and Gentiles. I don't know if you've experienced that uh, just this very literal challenge, but when I planned the church in Issaquah, we met in a community center, and we had bought some fancy new Bose speakers. They were super portable. We could set them up in about three minutes, and then we kept them in the closet of the community center, and I would get a call on occasion from Rabbi Farquhar, and he would say, hello, hello, Reverend Dean. I said, hello, Rabbi, how are you? He said, fine. I said, what can I do for you? He said, can I use your speakers? Sure, Rabbi, we'd be happy. Do you want me to come and help you set them up? He said, please. 
So for the first time when I met him, I set up the speakers for him and I walked up to him just like an American would and I stick my hand out and he does this and steps back. And he explained to me, he said, look, if I shake your hand, I will be ceremonially unclean and I will need to take a three-week break and I need to, I need to or a three-day break in order to be ceremonially clean again so I can't shake your hand, I'm sorry. That's the type of cultural difference between Jews and Gentiles. Certain foods they can't eat, certain foods they can't eat. Paul is saying, I am a missionary. He is saying the most beautiful thing I get to do is to introduce someone to Jesus. Because everybody has a God-shaped hole in their heart that absolutely nothing else can fill. And so it's my extreme privilege to get to introduce people to Jesus. But that is not easy work when you're talking about bridging cultures. And brothers and sisters, it's also not easy when you're talking about bridging generations. Bridging city versus country. Bridging language barriers. But the heart of the missionary is to see these challenges not as insurmountable but as opportunities. And so this morning when I talk about challenges, when I talk about the different trends that are absolutely mystifying right now in the world, I don't want you to listen to these trends and think, man, we are are done. We might as well just hide in a corner until Jesus comes back. I want you to think, these are amazing opportunities because we have a powerful Savior. But if I could accomplish one thing today, it would just be that you would somehow, that God would awaken in your heart this heart of a missionary that cares more for the people that need to hear about Jesus than your own comfort, your own security, uh, maybe even your own overflowing bank account. So we'll start with challenges. Current changes and challenges that face the church. First, global pandemics. There is, it's hard to see, I'll I'll read it for you. There is a tiny little underline under the letter S at the end of that statement. Global pandemics. Because of population growth, because of changes in the food system, because of environmental degradation and more frequent contact between humans and disease harboring animals, we have not seen the last of global pandemics. Super depressing, isn't it? At some point in the last couple of years, I swore I would never, I didn't swear, I made a sort of serious promise with myself that I was going to stop talking about pandemics. But it's just, this is something we have to face. It is, it is going to be a regular part of our life. And the effects of this, I'm not going to go into it in great detail. I don't need to. You have lived it. But these pandemics and the way that we address them destroys the mental health of both leaders who try and cope with it and people who are affected by it, especially our children. It causes widespread fear. 
And that widespread fear drives people into political camps, drives people that used to be here, which is they could talk to each other, to here, where we have a hard time even sitting down at the same table. Even among previously close families. It has been utterly disastrous on small churches. Utterly disastrous. It's amazing as I go from place to place. Just I will look a pastor in the eye and I, w- I will say, how are you? What has it been like for you for the last year? And they will very quickly, as they begin to tell their story, just begin to tear up and cry. And as they talk about people that just left and they have not seen them, they have not heard from them, they're just gone. Pandemics. Second, migration, global migration. If you can believe it, right now, as I speak on this stage, there are 240 million people worldwide leaving their place of birth with no intention to come back. 240 million people. That is two-thirds the population of the United States that is on the move. Have you seen it in Walla Walla? In Issaquah, we have had missional communities, and we'll talk about missional communities here in a bit, from Iran, the Ukraine, Korea, Japan, India, China, Poland, and those are just the ones that I thought of this morning, that have been adopted into our missional communities. And they have left their place of of origin, many of them with no intent of coming back. Just the world is on the move. And I'm not even talking about necessarily, other than Ukrainians, war refugees. Most of those people are women and children. Most of them have experienced some level of trauma leaving their home country and coming to a new place. Third area, rise of nationalism, tribalism. This is an absolute political roadmine, or this is an absolute political roadmine. Is that the right? Landmine. It's amazing when you speak how you can, you, your mind can completely freeze. But... This is a landmine, which means I'm going to talk about a political issue, and, uh, and some of you are going to be upset at me. just is what it is. But there is a rising number of people all over the world, not just the United States, that are looking at the world increasingly through a nationalist lens. It is, in some ways, because of Chinese, Chinese aggression. In some ways, it's because of, it's a response to radical politics some ways a response to the response of the pandemic. In some ways, it's because of massive immigration. But we see serious movements in the United States, in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in countries all over Asia. And what's happening is it just a, a, the age-old response in times of fear to cast the world between us and them. And then bipartisanship goes away. You've got arguments among family members that increases. You have church splits. You have leaders that feel like they are walking through minefields. 
once again destroying their mental health. In extreme cases, this even leads to war. We see this in Europe right now, of course, with, with Ukraine and Russia. It is a persistent, regular, imminent threat with places like Taiwan. And what happens then if it, if it leads to war is you have refugees. In 2022, last year, there were 100 million people that left their home because of pressures due to war. Places like Syria have been on fire uh, very literally since 2021. Uh, more than half their population have left the country. This is just, this is our world. And the fourth uh, most, I would say, impactful change is uh, what you could call a tech paradigm. Many of you have watched this change. But there are 6.92 billion smartphone users worldwide. Isn't that something? 6.92. Even my parents have a small has a smartphone. Even my grandmother has a smartphone. She has no idea how to use it. I'll send her a text and I'll you know find out three months later she got the picture. But 6.92 billion smartphones. 81% of Americans own a smartphone. You know what the average use is per day? Five hours, 24 minutes a day on the phone. Average use. The average Gen Z, some of these kids are looking at me really nervous, like, don't say it. You're going to get my phone taken away. Uh, the average Gen Z uses their smartphone more than the average family watched TV in 2015. Which means Gen Z is on their phone constantly. You know that, right? There's, there, I don't see any shocked faces in here. You guys have seen it, right? Can I get an amen? I'm just looking for any sort of audience response. Love you guys. Uh, you watch them... You know, going down the street, you know, across the crosswalk, cell phone, zombies, it is widespread. What happens is that with this massive smartphone use is you have something that you can call networked individualism. And this is worldwide. All of us have access to every sane and insane political philosophy out there, period, in a matter of moments. Therefore, our children, with all that variety of information coming in through a phone, have stopped being sure about things they should be sure about. And they have been influenced by every crazy philosophy and idea known to man. They are very literally addicted to social media. They have heard more bad news in their short lifetime than, than I think the previous generations have in their extended lifetime. Because all you hear, if you're, well, if you're reading news, is just endless, sensational, negative news deconversion stories, horror stories about 
uh, institutions like the church to the point where you just start losing confidence in everything that's true and start to wonder about everything that is crazy. And it is extremely difficult to shield children from these philosophies. Think about what you've experienced in your life. If you're, if you're a Gen X like me, you have, when, you grew, when I grew up, if someone wanted to contact me, they called the house. My mother picked it up most of the time, and she said, you know, hello, this is, dean, this is the dean residence, Marcia speaking, and the other person says, oh, you know, hi, uh, can I talk to Paul? And she's like, well, who is calling? She said it in a nice way. I don't know why I shook my head like that. <laughs> Dramatic effect. She said it very nicely. Who, who, who may I say is calling? And then my friend had to tell my mom who they were and what they wanted with me in order to get past mom. On our kids' phones, on our phones now, who is calling is absolutely destructive pornography, absolutely destructive violence, and it can be as crazy and as bad as neo-Nazi philosophy, and all of it goes through often with no filter. This is the world we live in. I don't know if you've ever read about Facebook censors. People that, have, that their, their job is, they work in San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay Area, they work for Facebook, and their whole job is just to make sure that absolutely horrific videos get taken down quickly off Facebook. Those people are constantly in counseling, often on suicide watch, most certainly depressed, have a very short tenure because it is unbelievably depressing the amount of horrific information out there that six point however many billion people have access to and that our kids have access to hour after hour after hour after hour. This is the world we live in, brothers and sisters. Let's close in prayer. Let's, let's, let's talk about opportunities. And before we get there, I just want to talk a little just about the effects of it. Regrettably, the church is a little bit behind. I mean, if this is a football game, we're down a couple touchdowns here in the first quarter. We have not been coping well with these changes. And our young people are noticing. Nearly one-third of Americans under the age of 30 identify themselves not as Christian or they're not as Catholic or Protestant or whatever the religious designation is, one-third of people under 30 just write down, just check none as far as religious affiliation. And not all those people were, some of those people were actually raised in the church, but we have done a poor job installing our faith in them. We have done a, a poor job showing how, despite all of its faults, the church is the most powerful force for good in this world. We've just done a poor job passing along our faith. And what we see in, in the millennial generation and Gen Z, because they have been affected by these destructive fringe ideas, because they have not seen the value in church, because we have not passed along their faith our faith to them, because they do not have a strong relationship with God, which is an anchor for our soul, millennials and Gen Z are marked by intense loneliness, depression, anxiety. They need Jesus. 
just like you and I need Jesus. And so I think it's a wake-up call as we look at the depression rate, as we look at the antidepressive prescription rate, as we look at suicide, which is now beginning to reach epidemic levels in some populations. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for the next generation, and we need to have a heart for sacrifice so that they can learn who Jesus is and have a relationship with them. I think we also need to have a heart for the leaders that have walked through all these dizzying changes. In 2015, Barna did some research on on leaders, and they found out that 72% in in 2015, 72% of pastors felt very satisfied with their job. Seven years later, 2022, just 52% are satisfied with their job. Which means if you run into a pastor, if you meet a pastor and you ask him, are you happy with your job right now? It's really a coin flip between yes or no. And according to statistics, 41% 41 of pastors in the last year have considered, seriously considered, quitting ministry altogether. So brothers and sisters, let's think like Paul Let's think about how we need to change as as the church in order to address these significant challenges. I I am the executive director of the Soma family of churches, and what is beautiful as I go from place to place to place is to see how these churches are innovating. It is beautiful to see how these various leaders are looking these changes in the eye and seeing them as opportunities. Opportunities. As far as global pandemics go, they are asking the question, how do we bring order and comfort to those in fear? How do we point people to the one who can feel that lonely, anxious, depressed part in their heart? As far as global migration, Soma is asking, how do we love the stranger? How do we love somebody from a completely different culture. At Soma Eastside, we've seen people come, we saw a young lady come in from Iran. We asked that question, how do we love the stranger? And one of the couples in our church had an empty room, and so they invited her in. They effectively adopted her. She stayed in their home for the entire pandemic. Same thing in the last couple years with a couple of Ukrainian refugees adopted them into a family in the church, and now we have a whole group of people from the Ukraine, as 34,000 of them have landed in Seattle. In regards to nationalism, a missionary asks, how do we show love to our enemies? How do we maintain our convictions without completely judging and alienating those with a different point of view. A missionary asks, how do we walk through this open door that is everyone's smartphone? How do we help our young people see, discern what is good and what is evil? 
that comes through their smartphone? How do we show them that they have a choice to either invite all sorts of destructiveness and addiction into your heart? Instead of doing that, how do you actually use your smartphone and open your Bible app? Matter of fact, there's a group of churches in, in the Czech Republic who were worried about the next generation, and so they just said, okay, we've just got to start younger. We've got to teach not our adults how to be leaders. We need to teach our middle schoolers how to be leaders. How do we, they decide they want to teach their young people to love those who disagree with them instead of boycotting them, instead of canceling them. So for my third point today, I just want to talk about a couple case studies, what it looks like for us to be missionaries in our world. I was on a call this week with, our, with the head of the global areas for SOMA, and he was talking to me about a church in Australia. And this church in Australia, instead of being afraid of the pandemics and the migrations and the tech paradigm, and the rise of nationalism and tribalism, they have put all of their energy into being missionaries to their community, to being family, to being servants, to being missionaries. And that, their church that started three years ago now has 70 nationalities represented. Seven, zero. They primarily minister to college students, Gen Z. They see over 50 conversions a year. They planted three years ago, and now they are a church of five or 600. And simply by living as family, as servants, as missionaries. I came in contact with this philosophy after being stuck in 2009. So we were sent out in 2009, and we came to this church. We came to a church in the Evangelical Free Church in Pullman. We came to a regular Baptist church that I grew up in in Richland. And so we went out and we planted a church. We were like a, I don't know, like a NASCAR um, vehicle. You got different stickers on the, on the hood of the car. But we go out, and we, we don't have a whole lot of idea how we're going to start this church. And so we just planted a service which meant we rented a community center. And I got up and, and preached uh, most weeks, a fairly mediocre sermon. And uh, some people learned, some people left. Uh, but after three years of planting services and holding events, one of my interns came up to me and he said, hey, I've, I found what I think is a better way to make disciples. And you know, I was trained in the... I grew up in the church, and so I've been around you know, this type of disciple-making environment quite a bit. And I just thought, why do we need to improve on this? And my, my intern gave me at least 15 reasons why we needed to improve on this. And so we went to something called Soma School. And that's where we did life together with a missional community for a week in Tacoma. And what was amazing is that they really focused on three basic things. Three basic gospel truths. The first one is that the gospel makes us family. You guys agree with that? Gospel makes us family? I don't know how many of you call each other brothers and sisters. Or at least think of yourself that way. That you're much more than just acquaintances. This is much more than a club. Amen? 
So we learned what it looks like for us to live as family. And, you know, it'd be a little bit of a dysfunctional family if your family just got together once a week and dad yelled at you for an hour, right? Not saying you do that, Logan. But it's, it's just much, it's more than that. So we saw these missional communities. They would gather once a week for dinner. I mean, everybody eats 21 times a week. They just shared one for those meals. So think of about 15 people, 20 people, every Thursday night, they got together and had dinner together. And they prayed before the meal, and some of the people that were with them knew Jesus, some didn't. And then once a week, they got together for something they called DNA. Uh, you would just call it a Bible study. And then they would, they would find ways during that week, or perhaps during that month, to serve the community. For some of them, they served a local high school. For some of them, they served uh, middle school. Some of them served people that were in uh, low-income housing. Some just shared the gospel with their network of friends. And what was beautiful during that week, I could just see that they were actively, deliberately, not just holding events, not just getting together to learn, but they were living out their faith seven days a week as family as a family of servant missionaries. I got through a week of that. I looked at my intern. I said, that is a fantastic idea. I don't think it's going to work in the suburbs. Right? I mean, if you guys have been around church life long enough, you know that you know, occasionally you see a, you know, a program works in one spot but doesn't work in other places. So we went back home and we started praying. And we said, God, would you use us to be a blessing to your neighborhood, to this neighborhood that you put us in? And we tried different things uh, to contact an audience. Uh, we finally just started doing block parties. And then at one of these block parties, um, we, we proposed this idea to our neighborhood that we said, we're going to eat, we're going to basically just gonna have a public meal every Thursday night, and we're going to invite you all to it. If you guys would just let us know, uh, if you're coming that way, we'll have enough food. But, and even if you just want to come, stop by, eat dinner, and go like we're a, a takeout place, that's fine. We just want to connect. And so week after week after week after week, we opened our house. People came in. Some were believers. Some weren't believers. But we tried our best to live out these gospel identities of family and servant and missionaries. And at the end of every dinner, we would have a, a time of highs and lows. We would just talk about what's going well in your week, what's not going well in your week. And one of the, the people that had come in, her name was Gail. Uh, she, she lived about a rock's throw uh, from our house. And, uh, and she had a phone, and sometimes it rang. Um, just wanted to connect that, that moment. Uh, but, she, but during highs and lows, one day Gail just broke down and said, I can't pay rent. That's my low. And we said, Gail, how much do you owe? And she said, well, we also owe last month's rent. And so we're about 10 days away from being uh, kicked out of our house. And I said, Gail, how much is the two months rent? And she said, $6,000. 
And so there we are, a group of people that know Jesus and don't know Jesus, and we all just, I just looked around the table and said, should we pray for Gail? And everyone's like, yeah, because no one had $6,000. So we pray for Gail, and then I, then, you know, we go through the rest of our evening, and people gradually go out, and as people are going out, they're like, can we help Gail? And I'm like, sure, you know, if you have money, just let me know. By the end of the week, I had $7,000 in my, in an envelope that everyone in the group had given. And so uh, the next week we get together for dinner, as is our custom, because we're living like family. And we go through and we eat our meal, and then we go through highs and lows, and we come around to Gail. Gail, how are you doing? Have you come up with the money yet? And she said, no. She says, I'm about three, if I don't have it in three days, I'm kicked out. And I just pulled an envelope out of my pocket, and I slide it across the table, and I said, Gail, we all contributed. I think that's enough for your rent. You can imagine her response. What's beautiful about that story is, one, that not too long after we got to baptize Gail's whole family. Because we got to show Gail what Jesus' love looks like in action. And I think if we're going to be missionaries to this next generation, it needs to be less talking about it and more showing it. And it's really hard to show how you love each other if you're not regularly doing time together as family together. I actually think we could learn a ton from our youth groups where the youth, the youth really feel after spending years together like family and they're doing mission together as family. But I think when we, get to, when we graduate, when we get up to adult age, we just forget what it looks like for us to do life together as family, showing people that we adopt into our extended family the love of Jesus. Because, you know, after a while, you just hearing about it just doesn't cut it, doesn't show it. What was even better after, after helping Gail was my, one of my next-door neighbors coming over, knocking on my door, asking if we could talk. And as we're sitting on my porch, he said, why did you guys help Gail? He said, I've never seen anything like that. And then I got to explain how Jesus sacrificed and showed us love, and therefore we as his followers need to do the same. And then he looked at me and he said, you mean if I had difficulty, all of you would help me? And I said, sure, Christian. Do you have any needs at the moment? He said, no, but what a comfort it was. This is what God is calling us to. Whether it is a refugee or someone who is migrating here from another place, or maybe it's just someone across the street that has never, that maybe has seen a steeple, maybe has heard a Christian talk about what's right and what's wrong. Maybe they've seen that Christians have different political opinions than they do, but they've never been adopted into an extended family and shown what Jesus' love looks like. probably have 14 more examples, but I'm just, I, I'm going to be sensitive to time. I'll just say this. This is just an introduction. This is a flyby. Uh, at, for Soma, we talk about these things a lot. We, we talk about what it looks like for us to live as family, as servant, and missionaries. And I just encourage you at Trinity to have those have these discussions as well.
Let me move on towards closing. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. He says, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do so to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an, an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what I should. Otherwise, that I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing, there is no greater privilege than to get to introduce someone who doesn't know Jesus to Jesus. Because Jesus fills that God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. Jesus loves this world more than anyone ever has or ever will. So it is a great privilege to get to introduce someone to Jesus. But it also, brothers and sisters, it takes sacrifice and discipline. It sometimes takes us stepping away from beautiful traditions that we have inherited from our parents and grandparents and doing church differently. So I encourage you to become people of prayer. I don't want to insult you to say that I know that Trinity is a, is a church that values prayer, but I encourage you, if you want to have the heart of a missionary, pray, pray, pray. Because every good thing that I have seen happen in the church plant in the last 18 years has been because of prayer. I mean, God, for whatever reason, chooses to work through us, to bless us. I still have no idea where that $7,000 came from. Just honest. I mean, people called me out of the blue. People stopped by. I heard there might be a need. Here's some money. God answers prayer. Just if you want to have a heart of a missionary, if you want to care for people who have been disrupted by pandemics and migrations and destructive political philosophies and destructive uh, things they've learned through too many hours on the phone, I just beg you to become people of prayer. And I also encourage you to open your eyes. The next generation needs you. Needs you. And also, I just encourage you to open your heart. Hold your church traditions loosely. Evaluate whether or not they are effective. Traditions are beautiful things. There's some wisdom in traditions. But sometimes we forget that our traditions is just the previous generation's innovations in order to reach their generation. So hold them loosely. And lastly, I'll just make, a, make an ask on, the, on behalf of SOMA. I think my last slide, uh, my position is a new position with the SOMA family of churches. And this is, we, we are just gradually realizing that our frontline missionaries need a lot more support and help. Some of them are doing a fantastic job Reaching Generation Z, whether it is in Australia or in Iowa, in New York 
or in Tacoma, Los Angeles, Fort Worth, Texas. They're doing a great job reaching the next generation, but they, they desperately need support. And so my role is to help lead people through missional innovation, and it's to also help people, it's, it's to help support leaders in this very difficult time. And so I have been going around to the, the various churches that sent me the first time to go plant a church, and I'm coming back around just to say, would you guys like to help again? And there's two ways you can do that. One is by prayer, and all you have to do is just text me at 425-698-9372, and you just say, my name is Joe, and I would like to, you know, obviously use your own name, uh, whatever your name is, and I'd like to be on your prayer and support list. And then every couple weeks as I travel, you'll get a You'll get a text from me saying, I'm traveling to Walla Walla this week, or I'm traveling to Seattle, or I'm traveling to Fort Worth, or I'm traveling to Charleston, South Carolina. This is, these are the things that I would love to see happen. Would you just pray that I could be a, a support and help and encouragement to leaders there? And then when I get done with that trip, I send a picture of myself with those leaders and let you know how it went. And then once a year, if you're on this list, I will send you a, a note that sounds like, would you please pray whether or not you can support us financially this year. So prayer, and then once a year, financial ask. The second way that you can help is uh, I am praying for 200 financial supporters in 2023. What we're doing is crowdfunding. So, so far we have, I think, about 85 of these 200, and these are people that are that are supporting us at $100 a month. And some of the people on that list have said, we love what you're doing, we're going to be five. We're going to support you $500 a month. But what we're just asking for is for about 120 more people saying, we want to help $100 a month. And you do that by going to wearesoma.com slash give on your evil cell phone that I have railed on this morning. Let's use this thing for good. And you go to wearesoma.com, give, and there's a little fund tab, and you just look for Paul Dean, and you just put how much, how much money you'd like to give, and whether it's a one-time gift, you can set it up for reoccurring, so it just does that monthly. And of course, I would, this should be over and above your Trinity giving. The last thing I want to do is to come to a church and decrease their budget. But if you have money to give over and above your Trinity giving, please consider supporting, helping to reach Generation Z and to support leaders across the United States and across the world. Thank you for listening. You've been a beautiful, attentive audience, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. God, we thank you for this incredible privilege to being part of your kingdom advancing. Father, truly we say your kingdom come. God, may your kingdom go forward and may it go forward with love and understanding and strength and wisdom. Father, we just ask you for the hearts of Gen Z and millennials, that they would see past the imperfection of the church, and see the perfection of Jesus. 
Father, would you take away the selfishness in our hearts and give us instead a heart for the lost? So much so that we would sacrifice our time, our talent, and our treasure. Father, we, we, we acknowledge and receive this commission that you've given us. Father, thank you for sending us to make disciples of all the nations. Father, would you give us wisdom and strength and resources that we need so that we can baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Would you give us the wisdom to innovate so that we could make disciples and we could teach these disciples to obey all the commands that you've given us? And Father, thank you for your promise, your invincible promise that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.